This is an RNZ podcast. Do you really think the Taliban will keep any agreement? They wait till you draw down your forces while they gather theirs in the villages and in the mountains. And then it will be Saigon all over again. Your embassy under siege, helicopters taking off from the roof, every fool who ever worked for you, massacre in the street. Anyone who's been filling their lockdown downtime lately by binge-watching the final series of the US spy show Homeland might have found its fictionalised account of the US trying to get out of Afghanistan in a hurry pretty prescient. What about the embassy, even just non-essentials? We start evacuating non-essentials, we turn a panic into full-on hysteria. As it happens, the Taliban took over last month without massacres in the streets of Kabul, but getting people out who feared the Taliban provided dramatic stories of improvised rescue illustrated with dramatic NZDF images and footage. And among them was an exclusive in the New Zealand Herald, which described a grandmother in a wheelchair who had to be hauled out from the crowd via a sewage-filled ditch. But while the Prime Minister said 390 people were safely evacuated by New Zealand forces, Afghan translator Bashir Ahmad, who worked for the NZDF in Bamiyan province and came to New Zealand some years ago, told Morning Report that he knew of 36 more people who were still stuck in Afghanistan. No, everything is not good. Security is not good. Our, our financial situation is just zero. It's all, you know, bad. And as Gordon Campbell pointed out on scoop.co.nz, authorities here haven't provided a breakdown of those evacuees. How many of the people were already New Zealand citizens? How many were just contractors? And how many Afghan citizens whose previous service for the NZDF has now put them and their family members in danger? For those who are left behind, the chances of getting out soon seem even slimmer. And the end of 20 years of US occupation was witnessed by the BBC's veteran correspondent, Lise Doucette. All day we had heard the American warplanes circling above the city, flying low as we thought the last American flights were taking off, providing extra cover in these last decisive hours. Now, remarkably, Lise Doucette was also there 32 years ago when Soviet forces pulled out in winter after their unsuccessful occupation that lasted almost a decade. And only a relatively small band of journalists remains to keep the world in touch with the drama of Kabul. Canadian correspondent Lise Doucette is one of them. No one can say with any certainty what's going to happen in Afghanistan next month or in the coming months. But many Afghans fear that as the Soviets are on their way out, and that the world's media will be following them, and the Western missions have closed, that most people aren't going to care. Well, 30 years on, please do set, and others still in Afghanistan are asking the same question. Now, the last time the Taliban were in charge, between 1996 and 2001, the press was heavily controlled, and independent journalism almost impossible. And after the US ousted the Taliban 20 years ago, local and international media flourished in Afghanistan, but now their future's far from clear. The day before that suicide attack outside Kabul's airport, the BBC's Lise Doucette was distressed to find pioneering female journalist Wahida Faizi on the tarmac at Kabul airport, trying to get out. I believe they will kill me. You'll be okay. I believe they will kill me. Why will they kill you? Because you're a woman? Because you're a journalist? Why will they kill you? I advocate for another woman journalist.
Wahida Faizi has reportedly reached Denmark safely since then, but in the meantime, the Taliban have been getting to know the reporters who are still there, such as the New Zealander Charlotte Bellis, who reports from Kabul for the global channel Al Jazeera. Mujahid stated journalists should remain free and independent to critique the group so it can improve. For Afghans on all sides, there is a lot of healing ahead. Last weekend here on Sunday morning, Charlotte Bellis told Jim Moore that as Al Jazeera is based in Qatar, where the Taliban have a political office, that puts her in a better position, she said, than journalists working for other international outlets to challenge the Taliban and even, from time to time, to offer them a bit of media advice. I've said to the Taliban, you've got a real problem here because if if you're going to be successful in running the country, you need people to trust you and you need to build that trust. And you need to be transparent and and authentic and do as much media as you can to try and reassure people. But it's pretty clear now that the Taliban already do know a bit about handling the media. The Taliban's slick spokesperson Abdul Kahar Balki told Charlotte Bellis they were grateful to New Zealand for offering financial aid to Afghanistan, which was reported on TVNZ like this. New Zealand has been the first, the leading country, uh, as it has always been, during humanitarian causes, has been the leading country to announce a humanitarian aid to the Afghan people. I would like to immensely thank the people of New Zealand and the government of New Zealand for showing empathy uh, with their fellow human beings. But that money is for the UN agencies and the Red Cross and Red Crescent operations. And that prompted the former chief of the UN Development Programme, Helen Clark, to call into News Talk ZB's Kerry McIver last week to say Charlotte Bellis and New Zealanders were being spun. So they use social media to, to spread you know, their propaganda, and there's a, there's a hard cop uh, angle to that and a soft cop. So the cop, soft cop is, let's look, look good by sort of saying, oh, isn't it wonderful aid's coming? And it implies when journalists run these stories that, that governments are supporting the Taliban, which of course is far from the truth. And all this does raise questions about just how the media which remain in Afghanistan should deal with an outfit which turfed the recognised government, which New Zealand fought for, out of power, and whose real intentions are not yet known. And when the focus moved to negotiating with the Taliban for the safe exit of people with New Zealand visas still stuck there, News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen asked Charlotte Bellis this: Why are we signing deals with this, like with the Taliban, like this, and validating them when they are completely untrustworthy? Uh, well, that's a controversial statement. <laughs> is it controversial uh, to say that the Taliban anybody... are untrustworthy? Is it? No, but I don't think, A, we haven't signed a deal with them. Um, A number of countries led by the US came to an agreement that they wouldn't hurt anybody in leaving. And deals like that have been made for the last three years as part of negotiations between the US and the Taliban. And for the most part, the Taliban has stuck to the deal that they made with the Americans in uh, Doha. So they have actually been working with the Americans this entire time to facilitate the exit of not just Americans and uh, other allied countries, but also New Zealanders, and I've witnessed that firsthand. Well, Heather Duplessy-Allen was right to be sceptical, but Charlotte Bellis was also right. For years, the Afghan government, the Taliban and Western powers have been doing deals, often in Doha, where Al Jazeera is based. Our media paid little attention to that, even when our forces were still there during the Afghanistan war. But Charlotte Bellis's Al Jazeera certainly did report on all that. 
Well, another one who knows a bit about all that is Peter Grester. He was the BBC's correspondent in Afghanistan in the mid-1990s when the Taliban was poised to take over for the first time. And then he was jailed for months in Egypt on trumped-up charges, along with local colleagues, when the regime there decided that it didn't like the reporting of Al Jazeera. So will international reporters like Charlotte Bellis be able to challenge the Taliban on how they run the country from now on? And what can the world do now to make sure that local and foreign media are safe from persecution? Make it abundantly clear to the Taliban that they need to stick to their promises to protect journalists and media workers and let them continue to work. Now, I appreciate that's uh, a difficult thing to do. I also appreciate that the, the Taliban's words and their actions don't always align. But at the very least, we, we need to start with that. Um, I also think we need to make sure that we maintain communications with them. Um, that's obviously the beauty of social media and the internet. We need to leverage that. We need to use all of the tools that we can to make sure that we're exact, across exactly where they are and what's, what's happening to them. And in fact, I'm, I'm already talking to a number of uh, organisations about setting up um, a, an Afghan media freedom tracker that will monitor any incidents um, that limit the work that journalists do, any restrictions, any attacks, any assault. And the other thing I think we need to be doing is giving visas to any journalists that want to get out. Now, I, I appreciate that it, it's almost impossible at the moment, um, particularly with the door shutting very, very quickly at Kabul airport. And even if they do severely restrict the movement of journalists and media workers, um, Afghanistan's borders are, are, are Swiss cheese. Um, it's not always easy to get across, but it is it is possible. For a country like Afghanistan, uh, it's geographically complex, linguistically complex. When you first went there back in 1994, you would have really needed people with local expertise, translators, fixers. Those people are really important, aren't they? Yeah, you can't possibly operate without them. Good, good translators will, will help you not just translate the, the, the words, but also help you understand the context, the cultural and political and historical context. So media workers across Afghanistan have been absolutely vital. Uh, to simply you know, give refuge just to journalists, just to those people who have their bylines on stories um, or their faces on air um, is simply not enough. And the Taliban know know that. They've been working very hard to try and identify not just the journalists, but also the support staff. Do you think the Taliban are likely to victimise people who have been associated with international uh, media organisations? I think that there is a very, very serious chance that they will. There's been an obvious gap between what the Taliban say, the rhetoric that's been coming out of um, a lot of the senior spokespeople who insist that they are uh, prepared to let journalists continue to operate and women continue to, to work. And a lot of the really troubling reports of um, attacks by uh, Taliban fighters on the ground, um, stories of, of Taliban going door to door looking for, for uh, journalists or, or members of their family. There is still a chance now, though, that the Taliban may actually recognise that if they take that approach, then they're going to they're going to really struggle. And of course, watching the way that they treat journalists is, is I think, going to be a really important barometer of, of the way that they, 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 they plan to operate. Yeah, in the, some of the New Zealand coverage, uh, reporters have talked about uh, a Taliban charm offensive. That's a phrase they use. And we've seen footage of press conferences and stand-ups where they have fluent English-speaking um, spokespeople. Do you find it a 
bit alarming that the media will just hear fluent English spoken uh, and the sort of public relations talk that the spokespeople are obviously capable of and seem convinced that this is a different outfit? I mean, I think it's indicative of the changes that the Taliban have gone through, the lessons that they've learned. They've been incredibly adept at using social media. They've started, they've understood the importance of communication. They've come a long way. You know, they've become a lot more sophisticated politically and ideologically. What we don't know is whether the, whether that has filtered down to the core of the organisation. You know, there are an awful lot of fighters, an awful lot of hardline commanders who are pretty unsophisticated. They're from the villages of, you know, the Pashtun villages. It's too early to say whether, in fact, they've changed as well, or if they haven't changed, whether in, whether the ideology, the overall ideology of the organisation, has evolved to the point where they are prepared to to compromise and accommodate others, including journalists. Al Jazeera Charlotte Bellis, who they know is a New Zealander, sat down with the Taliban spokesperson for an interview and he volunteered that he felt very warm towards New Zealand and had given $3 million to the Red Cross to aid and assist uh, Afghanistan and that this was typical of New Zealand and it's a generous international outlook and so on. Uh, you know, diplomatic spin coming from the Taliban. There really is a danger, isn't there, that if you just have a regime that tells countries like ours what they want to think about the Taliban, that, you know, we could indeed be spun by it. You know, you forget that the country is has mobile phone network, it has social media networks. It's not easy, but it is possible to find out what's going on in those regions. And I think it's going to be very difficult for them to hold that mirage, if indeed it, it, it is a mirage. I agree that we need to be very, very sceptical in whether those actions align with the rhetoric. I'm not prepared at this point to write them off as as unworkable. I think we need to acknowledge the realities of what just happened in Afghanistan. Uh, Peter, I made one really brief trip there uh, back in 1996. It was shortly before, just coincidentally, before the Taliban rolled into Kabul, but it was just after your spell there. But I don't think there was any local television at all. Uh, in fact, very little local media because things were... So fractured. Um, Bilal Sawari, who speaks on RNZ National as, as their correspondent, uh, was talking about Tolo News and outfits like that, a local media scene that's that's thrived and flowered in the past 20 years without the Taliban. Do you think all that's at risk now? Um, I do think it's at risk. I mean, let's go back to 1995-96. So it was an incredibly underdeveloped media network back then. One of the great successes of the last decade or two has been that incredible flowering, as you said, of, of local media. Western organisations, Western donors um, and Afghans have understood that that having a free media um, is one of the most important aspects of having a functioning society. You need a free, independent, robust and fearless media. And uh, Afghans have really taken to that with incredible enthusiasm. The, the, the number of outlets, the number of journalists um, is just is just phenomenal, producing not just news and current affairs, but also entertainment programs. You can't put that genie back in its bottle, um, certainly not without some serious consequences. Working for Al Jazeera uh, you know, in Egypt, you encountered a, a regime that wasn't afraid to uh, you know, imprison a foreign reporter along with um, your local colleagues. Um, do you worry about people like Charlotte working for international media outlets that if the Taliban's attitude to them and the work they do sours that you know they could find themselves targets? Of course um, I worry enormously for Charlotte um, and, and also the staff that work with her. 
as a foreign correspondent, I think you actually do enjoy more protection than most other journalists, the local journalists. Experience in Egypt, as you know, I was imprisoned in Egypt um, by the Egyptian government. If my name had been Mohammed and not Peter, if I'd been Egyptian and not an Australian, um, there wouldn't have been anywhere near the kind of outrage and the consequences for the government would have been um, negligible if, if, if there had been anything at all. I think to a certain extent, because of her profile, because of her reputation, Charlotte does enjoy a degree of protection and security that just doesn't exist for, for a lot of local journalists. Now, I'm not suggesting that's no reason to worry. She also understands, um, and Al Jazeera also will have a lot of security arrangements in place to make sure that not just she's protected, but also their um, operations protected. And that's the kind of security protection um, and, and, and equipment that very few other local journalists are able to afford as well. You know, it's not as if they're completely naive. It's not as if they're un, unprepared for it. Um, and as I said, they're, they're much better off than most of the locals. Peter Grester, a former BBC correspondent in Afghanistan who was jailed for more than a year reporting for Al Jazeera in Egypt in 2014 and who's now the UNESCO Chair in Journalism at the University of Queensland and also the author of the book The First Casualty, a memoir from the front lines of the global war on journalism.